Well, over the past several weeks, in our study of Romans, we have talked a lot about sin, and we've gotten right up to the brink of the solution to the sin problem, and we've stopped short almost every time, and we've finally arrived at the solution to the sin problem. Almost. Um, This passage is really difficult. It is so complicated, and I was really critical of pastors who preach these verses like multiple sermons on the same text for not just getting through it and moving on, and I was somewhat critical of the Puritans who would write whole monographs on just one verse from this text until I had to try to write a sermon about it, and and that's how I feel. There is so much in here that's so debated but so necessary for our understanding of sin and salvation that we are just going to have to go multiple passes through this this text. So we're going to go through this text this week. We'll do it again next week, and I think we can just stop with two, but we may have to go through three times. Um, What this demands of you is careful attention because we have to pay attention to particular issues in the text. Um, I'm going to talk about some things this week that are somewhat debated. We have some translation issues to go through, and I hope to convince you to see it the way I'm seeing it. But even if I don't, that's not the biggest thing I hope will come out of this sermon. Mostly, I hope that you'll come to appreciate Christ's atoning sacrifice on your behalf and that you'll be moved to love him more and to commit yourself to him even more deeply than you already do. So ultimately, I I think you can do that even if you disagree with me, but I'm going to address some issues that I think will shed light on the bigger story of the Bible and help us understand Jesus' death in, in a more rich and complex way. To do so, we need to review the sin problem. So let's review the sin problem in Romans 3.23. Then we'll talk about the sacrificial solution, then the meaning of the the atonement, and then we'll talk about how we appropriate the atonement for ourselves. But let's start with the sin problem in Romans 3.23. In 1 through 20 last week, I argued that there are three aspects to the sin problem. First, I argued that there's a capital S cosmic power of sin. This cosmic power of sin, we are all under sin. That's the way Paul talks about it. We're all oppressed by sin. The picture of this is in Exodus. I'm so pleased that we're reading through Exodus in our morning service because we get the picture of Israel under the oppression of Egypt. And that's the type that shows us the kind of oppression we're under in sin. The difference is we willingly participate in it. So not only are we under the power of sin, we all commit acts of sin. Every individual is a sinner. There is no innocent victim to the tyrant of sin. We all participate in it individually. What's more, every social group is infected with sin. There's no good guys out there who are against the bad guys. Every group is infected by sin. So the answer to the sin problem isn't throwing off the oppression of one group from another. It's not by identifying with the right political party. It's not by identifying with the right skin color or anything. Every social body is infected by sin. Every individual perpetuates sin in their acts, and we're all under the reign of sin. Sin's a big problem, and we need a big solution to deal with it. That's what Paul has been setting us up for. And he picks up on that idea in Romans 3.23 when he says that all have sinned. He's just rehearsing everything that we've examined so far, but he goes on to say that all fall short of the glory of God. 
Now, here comes my first debatable argument for you. I, I don't know that this is the best translation of Romans 3.23. I think it's better to translate the verse, all have sinned and lack the glory of God. Um, honestly, the Greek text can go either way. So it's not a translation issue, it's an interpretation issue. We're trying to see what Paul is saying here. And I think he's trying to say that in our sin, we all lack God's glory. He's not trying to say that humans are all on their own journey to try to attain God's glory and there's a chasm and they fail to leap far enough and reach God's glory. He's, that's, that's not what he's saying. He's just spent all of Romans 1 and 2 saying that no one seeks after God. No one is striving after God's glory. What he's trying to say is that we all lack God's glory. We lack God's glory in our midst and we lack the capacity to reflect his glory. Now, because, this, because I'm going against what we're all familiar with, I want to take a few moments to explain this and to explain its significance. First, if we take this verse as we're all sinners and we lack God's glory, if it communicates that human sin is the cause of the removal of God's glory from earth. First, in the removal of God's glory from the Garden of Eden, then from the tabernacle and temple, and then from the earth altogether. If you're reading the story of the Bible, God's glory filled the Garden of Eden, and then his glory was present in the tabernacle, and then in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And every time humanity sinned against God, there was a departure of God's glory. God left the sacred places. Shiloh was destroyed. He left the, the Holy of Holies and sent Israel into exile. And then even when the temple was rebuilt, it was like the shadowy figure of the previous temple. And then Ezekiel gives us this vision of the departure of God's glory from Israel. All because of sin. Israel, the world, we all lack God's glory. And, and really what we're saying is we lack God's presence. We lack God's relational presence. This is simultaneously an act of judgment and it's an act of mercy because God's presence with sinners destroys them. It consumes them. This is why the New Testament authors say that our God is a consuming fire. So God's departure, his, his lack of presence among us both preserves us and it's ultimately our damnation as well. We need God's presence, but in our sin, we can't handle God's presence. So we lack glory. But second, this verse communicates that human sin is the removal of God's glory from each human person and humanity at large. So in ancient Jewish writings, the way that ancient Jews understood Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where humanity is said to be created in God's image and likeness, ancient Jews understood this to mean that humans were clothed with God's glory. That is, they had God's presence covering them in such a way that they reflected God's glory. And that's what it meant to be an image bearer of God. Now, not every ancient Jew thought this, but this is what's found in a lot of ancient Jewish writings, and this is what's found in Psalm 8, which is a poetic commentary on Genesis 1, 26 and 27. In Psalm 8, the psalmist said that God crowned humans with glory and honor. Um, so the way that Jewish people thought about this was in texts that talk about human nakedness in the garden, they said basically humans didn't need clothes because they were clothed with God's glory and it covered up any insufficiency in humanity. 
Um, we get a taste of this if you've ever talked to someone who is just not conventionally attractive, but the more you get to know them and the more beautiful you see their personality, the less their physical appearance matters. Um, do you, have you ever experienced that before? Um, this is depicted to us in Disney movies like uh, the Beauty and the Beast, right? She can see the beauty of his character be beyond his beastly features. Bas basically, what the ancient Jewish writers were saying is God covered us with his glory so that we reflected his presence and there was nothing lacking about us. But when humanity sinned, the glory was removed and, and our sinfulness was displayed instead. So our sin caused a removal of God's glory. We no longer imaged his presence. If we understand what Paul is saying in that regard, that we lack God's presence among us and we lack the capacity to reflect his glory, we get a better picture of what we need Christ to do for us. We get a better picture of our problem and we're better able to appreciate the solution. And... I would suggest we're better able to see how we're part of the problem. Because I think if each of us look closely at our own lives, we can detect a lack of God's glory presence in us. We, we detect sin that obstructs God's glory. And when we look at the human race, when we look at humanity at large, we can see how the, the lack of God's presence brings pervasive problems. And all of our attempts to fix them, as good as they might be, are not getting the job done. How long has humanity been around? And we still haven't solved this problem. We need help from the outside. We need help ultimately in Christ. Because without him, things are not the way they're supposed to be. So, so at this point, I just, want, I just want you to read Romans 3.23 and say, I am a sinner and I lack God's glory. I lack his relational presence and I lack the capacity to reflect his presence in the world. And as a result, we bring hell on earth instead of heaven. That, that's what Paul is getting at here. Um, but in every text, basically, where God's glory is taken away, there's a hint at a promise of the return of God's glory. Um, and it always comes through an atoning sacrifice. I want to get to that in a moment, but just uh, we'll talk about this more, the sacrifice in Romans 3, but already, can't you see the way that sacrifices did this in the Old Testament? Think about Adam and Eve's crown of glory being cast off, and God closed them with the skins of an animal through, through sacrifice. Um, the day of atonement. We'll talk about all of these things. In Ezekiel, when God's glory departs, Ezekiel prophesies of a day when God's glory will return. God wants his glory to be restored in the way that it happens is through Jesus. Okay, so we've re-examined the sin problem. We've looked at it from a slightly different angle. We need to go on a brief excursus and talk about the righteousness of God. So if you remember in Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul said that the righteousness of God is revealed in that text. And now he picks up that idea again here in Romans 3, 21. If you look at the verse, again, he says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Ultimately, the righteousness of God has been revealed in Jesus, and it's the righteousness of God that solves the glory problem, the sin problem. Um, I, if you're wondering how to define the righteousness of God, go back and listen to the sermon on Romans 1, 17b, because I listed five um, 
aspects of God's righteousness. But here, what, what's being referred to is the attribute of God, his own righteousness, that is put into saving action or covenant faithfulness that brings about the solution to sin and the lack of glory. Ultimately, that will come through re- redemption and justification. We'll, we'll talk about that later. But ultimately, God's righteousness, his setting right of the world, is revealed in Jesus Christ. Not ultimately in the law, though it was revealed partially in the law, not in any other thing, but only in Jesus is God's plan to set the world right fully revealed. He's demonstrated his righteousness in Jesus Christ. So if we're moving from recognizing we have a sin and glory problem to arriving at the solution, we have to just concede that the only way to fully solve the sin and glory problem is through the revelation of the righteousness of God. Now, there are three errors that we can make when it comes to observing the righteousness of God. I'll list them quickly. I want to hone in on the the last one. First, when it comes to the righteousness of God, we might improperly relate to previous revelations of God's righteousness. I think some of Paul's readers were doing this. They were more interested in the revelation of God's righteousness in the law than in Jesus Christ. And so there was a tendency to try to find righteousness in connection to the law instead of in connection to Jesus. I don't think that's the biggest problem for us in the room. If you're tempted to try to abide by the old covenant stipulations, talk to me afterwards. Um, But just by seeing all of the mixed threads in the audience, I, I don't think that's our biggest problem. But it may have been for some of Paul's readers. Second, um, a person might ignore the revelation of God's righteousness. And in fact, that's the natural disposition of all humanity. There are many people who just don't care to look to the revelation of God's righteousness in Jesus. We could ignore it. If you're in this room today, I'm assuming you're not hard-heartedly ignoring God's righteousness. But third, we could end up rejecting the revelation of God's righteousness and replacing it with something else. And I think that this is something that we're subtly all um, susceptible to. It's to cognitively affirm, yes, Jesus is the solution to the sin and glory problem, but then to actually move beyond Jesus and try to find a different solution to the glory problem. We do this by not looking at God's righteousness that has been revealed, but trying to conjure up a kind of self-righteousness that proves our goodness and proves that we can overcome our sin and glory problem on our own. But that's self-defeating because when we do that, we only project our image. We don't project God's image. So we're back to the glory problem. Um, This, I think, is the pervasive problem for most people. It's not that they reject that there's a problem in the world. It's not that they ignore the fact that the world is not as it's supposed to be. It's that, that we try to replace the righteousness of God with a different kind of righteousness. Um, I was reading a philosopher this week, and he wrote this as he was explaining why he doesn't believe in God. He said, if I got to choose, we'd be fictionalists about God and put our faith elsewhere, in each other and in our collective capacity to repair the world. If we did that, if we worked together to repair the world, I suspect God would be pleased if God exists. And, and he's partly right. There's a problem with the world. It needs repair. And actually, humans should get together and try to fix some of the problems in the world. 
but he's wrong in his starting point. The solution to the world's problem, the way to repair the world, doesn't start with us. We're the ones that started the problem to begin with. It starts with returning and accepting the righteousness of God. And when we do that, it actually motivates us to partner with other people to repair the issues that we see in the world because we understand the underlying solution, which is our sin problem, okay? So the righteousness of God, we can't find it anywhere else. We can't substitute it with our own or with, you know, this vague idea of humanity's goodness. We have to find righteousness, the setting right of the world through God in Christ. All right, how has God done this? How is God working to set the world right? Through the sacrificial death of Jesus. Here's the sacrificial solution in verses 22 and 25. And there are two elements to it. Um, I want to hit the first one really quickly so we can get to the second one. The first element of the sacrificial solution is that the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Here's our second translational issue. And I can't fully defend this here, but I think it's better to understand this in the way that the CSB has it footnoted. I think we should translate verse 22 in this way. The righteousness of God is revealed through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, where Jesus is the subject exercising the faithfulness. So I think, I think what Paul is trying to tell us is that the world set right looks like the life of Jesus. The world set right looks like Jesus in all of his faithfulness where we lack faithfulness. The world set right happens only because of Jesus' active obedience through his faithfulness. Um, this, this, for some of you, might not seem like a huge deal. In, in one respect, it isn't because later on, um, he says that it's for all who believe. So the aspect, the requirement of human faith is still there. But I think it's helpful if we can understand that the way God was setting the world right was to recognize that humans failed to be faithful, but Christ in his active obedience became faithful on our behalf. And if we want to see what the world set right looks like, then we look to Christ in all of his faithfulness. Um, If you want to see what living in glory looks like, with God's presence on earth, with a fully reflective presence of God, we look to Jesus, the one who displayed the glory. That's what John says. The word became flesh, and he displayed the glory of the only begotten Son of God. So if you want to see what the world set right looks like, look at the life of Jesus. Read through the Gospels over and over and over again, because even in our recognition that the world isn't as it should be, we often have poor visions of what the world should be. We don't tie into the beatific vision. We, we create our own vision of the good life, and we actually find ourselves further in the oppression of sin down the road. So if you want to see what the glory fulfilled looks like, if you want to see what the good life is, what the world set right is, read the Gospels. Look at the life of Jesus. If you want to participate in that, live like Jesus. You can't do that on your own, but you've got to look at it. You've got to look at Jesus in the Gospels in particular. Um, I, I don't know how to stress this point enough. Um, fundamentally, turn to the Gospels and see Jesus who shows us what it looks like for the world to be set right and throw off all other competing visions of the good life. Every one of you 
myself included, are tempted to construct a vision of the good life that's very different. And depending what the idols of your heart are, that vision will look very, very different. So I can't name them all. But for some of us, our vision of the good life is like restoring the health that we had when we were 20 and and having the body we had and and looking good in that way. For others of you, it's financial success. For others of you, it's popularity. For others of you, it's political power and influence. I, I don't know what it is for you, but whatever it is, look to Jesus and allow him to critique your vision of the world set right. Um, of course, I think you should do this primarily through reading the Bible, but do it through other ways. You know, for crying out loud, watch The Chosen if you care about that. I've never seen it, so I can't fully recommend it, but I think it fairly often depicts Jesus living in a Jesus-like way. Look at ancient art that depicts Jesus in certain ways. Um, Read kids' storybook Bibles that make it really plain what it looks like to live like Jesus. Capture the beatific vision by looking at Jesus and enter into that vision of the good life. All right? That's why I think we have to recover this idea of the faithfulness of Christ. Second, however, the righteousness of, the, of God and the faithfulness of Christ are displayed ultimately in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Now, once again, we run into a translational issue here, and I'm really glad that we're using the Christian Standard Bible because it says exactly what I think it should say. Um, If you're using a different translation, you're going to see words like propitiation or expiation or atonement or atoning sacrifice, but it misses the connection to the Old Testament that Paul is giving us. In Romans 3.25, it says that God presented Jesus as the mercy seat by his blood. Okay, what Paul is doing by choosing that description of Jesus in his atonement work is he's connecting him to the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 and throughout the Old Testament. The mercy seat was this golden cover on top of the Ark of the Covenant that was in the inner sanctuary and the tabernacle in the temple. Okay, so the mercy seat was this golden cover, and on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest would sacrifice a goat, and then he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, in this place connected to God's presence, so that God's presence, i.e. his glory, would stay with Israel and would not consume them. So what Paul is saying is that in the Old Testament liturgical cultic practice, sprinkling blood on the mercy seat was a way to recover the glory of God, to fix the sin problem, to fix the glory problem. But it only happened partially. Paul is saying that now Jesus has done it fully and finally and completely by becoming the mercy seat, God's presence among us, and becoming the sacrifice, the blood that's sprinkled on it, and becoming the priest who presents the sacrifice to God because he's God himself. This is in other places in the New Testament as well, especially Hebrews. But Paul is saying that Jesus is simultaneously God among us and God for us as he sacrifices himself on our behalf. Um, This forges a connection across the Testaments, and and it brings to a climax the redemptive work that God has always been doing. But it does it in a new and better and final way. 
Okay, that's, that's the sacrificial solution. No other one will do. That's why you can't go back to the Old Testament law. That's why we don't try to sprinkle blood on an Ark of the Covenant, even if we could find it. Um, we've moved on to the better and final sacrifice of Jesus. But what does it mean? What does it mean for Jesus to make atonement for us? Um, we'll consider this more in depth next week because the atonement produces something. It produces our justification and our righteousification. That's complicated. That's why we have to do a different sermon on it. It also provides redemption. Okay, connect this back to the blood on the doorposts of Israel when they're in Egypt, the lamb sacrifice. It brought about their redemption. Okay, but it, it goes beyond that. Um, here's the way that I think we can simply think about the meaning of the atonement. Um, the English word atonement is from an old English phrase, at one mint, meaning reconciliation. Do you see how atonement, at one mint are kind of related? Now, I know some of you are the seminary guys who are going to critique me for using an English word to explain this theological concept, but I, I think it's still helpful. There's a, there's a reason that we use this terminology to describe what Jesus did in his death on the cross. In the atonement, Jesus made humanity and God at one, reconciled them together. When they were previously separated by sin, when humanity was alienated from God, in the blood of Christ, there's an atonement that reconciles them back together. Um, but it also does that for humans. It, it brings humans back together as well. So I want to emphasize these two um, directions of the atonement. Vertically, Jesus' act of atonement brings reconciliation between humanity and God. I mean, it makes it possible for God's glory, his relational presence, to dwell with his people once again. It paves the way for forgiveness for the offense of our sin because it's been owned by Christ and covered in his blood. So it, it radically transforms the relationship between humans and God. It's not one of alienation, it's one of unification. Now, I know some of you are troubled by the notion that Jesus would have to die to bear the penalty for our sin. You know, for some of you, that sounds a lot like pagan theology. It, it sounds a lot like the Greek myths where someone would sacrifice their kid to become at one with the gods once again. I can't answer that fully here, but there's at least one big distinction that helps. In the ancient Greek mythologies, the, the Greek gods were just randomly angry, and, and all you could do is try to pick the thing most dear to you and sacrifice it in hope that they would be made happy from their arbitrary anger. But in the biblical picture, God sacrifices himself not to appease an arbitrary wrath, but to actually do something about the reality of sin, okay? That's just the start of an answer, but Christianity is not the same as paganism, despite what you see on TikTok videos and YouTube videos. It's quite different. Um, God himself made the sacrifice, it was initiated by him. It's not us who are saving ourselves through sacrificing something dear to us. So there's a vertical change, but there's also a horizontal change. In the atonement, the path for reconciliation between social groups and individual humans has now been 
purchased. It's been made available. We're able to live reflecting God's presence to one another instead of being alienated from one another. And this is what Paul is getting at in Romans. You know, we sort of forget this, but there are two groups who are not at one in Romans. You have these Jewish Christians um, who are upset that the the non-Jewish Christians are eating meat and drinking wine and not observing holy days. And Paul is laying the theological foundation to show why people with different practices and different cultures can actually be at one together. It's because all of their identities have now been relativized and they take on the greater identity of Jesus. Okay, so this is very important relationally. And it becomes the foundation for our forgiveness when we um, sin against one another. Because in every sin, someone has to own that penalty. For forgiveness to happen, someone owns the offense. And what Paul teaches us is that Jesus owns the offense between us and God, including our offenses against one another, such that when someone offends me, when someone sins against me, I can forgive them because Jesus has already owned their debt. Because I've been forgiven, I can forgive freely. Because you've been forgiven, you can forgive freely. Because God is not making you pay for your sin, you're freed not to make other people pay for their sins against you. This is a hard truth, but it's one that we have to get deep into our bones or else we'll both misunderstand the way that God is looking at us and sharing himself with us because we'll always be trying to earn that favor. We'll always be trying to pay for our own sins and we'll never have the kind of relationships that are possible because we'll always be making other people pay for their sins too. This theological truth is not just a thing that belongs in a systematic theology. It's something that belongs in the way you relate in your marriage, in the way you relate to your parents, and to your children, to your co-workers. Our whole theology of forgiveness comes from this, that God forgave us in Jesus. Okay, so we've got the meaning of the atonement that deals with our sin problem, but we still have to, we have to go further because the atonement isn't applied automatically to people. We don't automatically benefit from Jesus's death. So how do we apply the atonement to ourselves? How do we appropriate the atonement for ourselves? The benefits of the atonement are received through faith in Jesus. And faith, I want to suggest, involves trusting in Jesus's sacrifice and entrusting oneself to Jesus. It's a deep conviction that you can't repair your problems, you can't repair the world, you can't restore God's glory, only Jesus can, and it leads to a lasting commitment by which you connect yourself to Jesus. You don't you, you don't offer yourself up as the answer. You turn away from all other ultimate solutions and you look to Jesus alone as the ultimate solution. Um, I'm going to quote that, that non-Christian philosopher who rejects God again because I think he has a really good explanation of what it takes to appropriate the atonement for yourself um, through faith. He says, a person who has faith orients her life around God. I think that's a pretty good description of what it means to grab onto faith, to orient your life to Jesus Christ. 
If we think about faith in that way, we pretty much have two options. One is to repent of orienting our life around ourselves or whatever vision of the good life we've set up and orient it to Jesus. So turning from ourselves and turning toward Christ. Or we can say, that would require a redefinition of who I am and I'm unwilling to reorient myself to Christ. Tragically, that's what this guy said. In his philosophy book that I'm reading, um, he said that he's not that kind of person who can do that. He, he said, faith calls for a commitment that I can't make, at least not without remaking myself. Every one of us is faced with those options. Will we refuse to allow ourselves to be remade through orienting our lives to Christ, or will we go on thinking that we have to just keep making ourselves according to whatever vision of the good life we might have? Faith calls for a commitment, a self-denial in a connection to Jesus, an entrusting of ourselves to Christ and Christ alone. Now, I, what that means is that we're appropriating something that's already done. We're not doing the sacrifice. Refusing to orient yourself to Christ is you making yourself the answer. Orienting yourself to Christ is making Christ the answer. So faith will be imperfectly exercised. So when I tell you that faith is a call to give yourself to Jesus, to orient your life to him, God doesn't demand that we do this perfectly. Even as we're supposed to progress towards a better expression of faith and a better way of relating to Jesus, we're all imperfect in our expression of faith. Um, we do it imperfectly, and that's always been the case. Um, I, I want to give you an example of how you can subtly, if you say that I have to have perfect faith, or if you're down on yourself because you falter in your faith on occasion, what, what you're doing is you're replacing Jesus as the atoning sacrifice and making your faith the atoning sacrifice. Um, it's, it's not the quality of your faith, but the object of your faith. And, and this is how one pastor illustrated it. I thought he did a, pr a pretty good job. Um, it doesn't matter if you have the strongest faith in the world that you can fashion together a bunch of feathers and put them on your arms and then jump off a cliff and fly. You might truly believe. You might be fully committed. You might have unassailable faith that putting feathers on your arms will make you fly, but your ob the object of your faith is empty. Those feathers won't fly you anywhere. You won't fly. You'll fall. Um, and it's not because your faith was weak. It's because your faith was misplaced. If, if we put faith in our own faith, okay, here's, here's how I did it for most of my life. I had prayed a prayer asking Jesus into my heart, and I re-prayed that prayer thousands and thousands of times because I was afraid I didn't say the words just right, or maybe I didn't mean it quite enough. And I started to put my faith in that prayer is what would make me receive salvation from God instead of in what Jesus did. I transferred the object of my faith to my expression of faith instead of Jesus. We, we can do that in a variety of ways, and if, if the object of our faith is misplaced, it doesn't matter how strong it is. It won't get us anywhere. We won't fly. We'll fall. But 
Imagine this. Imagine someone who's afraid of flying, who's so timid when it comes to airplanes that they can hardly take the steps to get on the plane. The whole time they're waiting to board, they're nervous, they're lightheaded, but they have just this inkling of faith. They, they, they're going to entrust themselves in whatever wavering way to the plane to transport them across the country. And they get on the plane and it does it. All along the way, they're scared, they're frightened, and they're, they're doubting whether or not this is actually going to happen. The object of their faith didn't matter. We could say that they just had faith the size of a mustard seed that got them on the plane, and the plane took them there. But, you know, to press the analogy further, if they jumped out of the plane midway, they've lost faith in, in the plane. It doesn't matter if you have the smallest inkling of faith that draws you to Jesus. Jesus will bring you through safely, but you can't abandon him. You must keep leaning deeper and deeper into him, even as you experience assaults of doubt and failure along the way. It's not your faith that does it. It's Jesus, but it's through faith that we connect ourselves to him. So we press forward in confidence in all of our wavering, in all of our weakness, grabbing onto Christ, knowing that he is holding onto us. And that is the only way forward. So the only way forward for you, for me, for humanity is to connect ourselves to Jesus by faith. Let's pray and thank God for that and ask him for the faith to cling to Christ. God, we ask that you would give us the faith to respond to the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. We do pray that you would strengthen our faith, but more so that even in our wavering, we would um, rest in the firm grasp that Jesus has on us. And as we do so, would you restore glory in each of our lives? And would you restore glory in your church, which is the dwelling place of God by his spirit? And would you convince us all the more of the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf? In Christ we pray. Amen.